0: Amen. Let's pray and ask the Spirit of God to help us as we open His Word together. Our great and holy triune God, will you come to us in the person of your Spirit? Or will you give us light that we may understand the Word of God that you've placed before us? Help us to hear our Savior speak through through His Word. Will you use this means to convince us and convict us of the sin that remains in us, to warn us of the perils of, and the pitfalls of life in this age. And will you encourage us of the hope that we have in Christ, who has conquered even the final enemy, even death itself. We thank you for that sure promise, and we ask that you attend now to the preaching of your word for your own glory and for the good of all of your people. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Take your seat and turn with me again to Judges chapter 3. Our text today is Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And I mentioned last week that this this is a two-part sermon. The title of the sermon is The Warfare of Nonconformity. What we find in chapter 3, as you'll recall, is is that God has said he's left enemies in the land. And last week we wrestled with the question, why? Why? Why would God do that? Why would God leave enemies behind? And the, and the two answers that we find from the text are very simply that one of them is because he said so. God had told his people, if you are not faithful, if you, if you make covenants with the people into whose land you were going, if you fail to drive them out, then I will leave them there. And so God has been faithful to his word. But secondarily, the text tells us that he did so to test them to try them, to refine them. So we've considered those, those questions of, of why. What, why must there be war? Why must there be enemies left in the land? As part two of the sermon, I want to consider now the question of what. In any battle... If you look upon the news, even today, as you see all the headlines about Russia and Ukraine, it will often be accompanied by a map of some sort showing where the hot spots are. Where are the main areas of conflict? Where are the main areas of, of aggression? Where is the enemy having success? In what ways, if we could ask in, in among the Israelites as they went into the land of Canaan, in what ways was their loyalty to Yahweh particularly tested? What were the key battlegrounds? In some ways, this will be one of the easier sermons I've preached in quite some time. Uh, By easier, I don't say that with with delight or or joy even. What I mean is that the task of persuading you of the contemporary significance and relevance of this will be an easy sell. It's not going to be a stretch. It's not going to require a lot of exegesis or even a lot of your imagination to see immediately where these things correspond to where we live and work and walk in our present day. The three primary areas of testing, and we see this revealed throughout the time of the judges, but even far after that, as we're reading today, and, and it struck me in our Old Testament reading in Second Kings, the very same issues are still present, even in that time. And it sees three areas. The area of worship, number one. This was one of the chief hotspots in the battle for the souls and the minds of God's people to test their loyalty was in the area of worship. Secondly, was in the area of marriage and human sexuality. Marriage and human sexuality. And the third area we're going to see is in the area of children and education and discipleship. In both of the New Testament's primary apostles, both Paul and Peter, brought these same ideas forward into the new covenant. And I'll show you that in just a few moments. Let's read together the text. Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as lebo They were for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And we'll pay particular attention today to verse 6. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. As I said, both of the major... Apostles in the New Testament, both Paul and Peter, warn God's New Covenant people about conforming to the world around us. And they use martial language. They use military kind of language to describe this. God has left spiritual enemies in the land just as he left the Canaanites in the land for Israel's testing. So the first thing that we really need to see to understand what's going on here is that this was an actual literal warfare where blood was shed and men died. And also, it pointed to a much greater spiritual battle that was going on for the hearts and minds of his people. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he he spends the first 11 chapters laying out the glories of the gospel from before eternity, before time began, up to the present hour, God's redemptive work among his people. And then he begins chapter 12, therefore, therefore. Don't be conformed to this world. And Paul's not giving this as a theoretical, hypothetical possibility that, you know, if you're really not careful as Christians, you could find yourself sort of drifting over into conformity with the world. No, Paul's saying this is your default position. By nature, you are conformed to the world. We think like pagans by nature. And it's it's by the Word and the Spirit that our minds are renewed and that our lives are transformed before the Lord. And Paul even uses this same language. It's by testing that you will discern the will of God. We saw at the end of Hebrews chapter 5 in our New Testament reading this morning that very same fact, that, that solid food is for the mature, who by testing have their powers of discernment exercised. So you see, in Paul's mind, conformity to the world and holiness are at odds with one another. Now, Peter picks up the exact same idea in 1 Peter chapter 2, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, meaning a people set apart, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And he's he's making an allusion here to Hosea. Beloved, I urge you, listen to this, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, They may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. See, the apostles in the New Testament understood that we live behind enemy lines. We live in hostile territory. And and there's an admonition for both Paul and Peter. Don't be conformed to that. It's the same battles. It's the same fronts of the battle, the same hotspots that the Israelites waged war against in Canaan. You and I still wage war against the very same things. And so, when the historians study the wars, there's always this emphasis on determining what is the primary battlefield? Where is the enemy making success? Where is the enemy gaining ground? In the same way, as we look back, we look sort of behind the physical battles that the Israelites faced against the Canaanites. See, it wasn't just the chariots and the bows and the swords that were their biggest threat. The very souls of the people of God were at stake, and the souls of their children. As we look at these three primary battlegrounds of worship, marriage and sexuality, and children and education, I'm I'm convinced that these three areas remain the primary areas of testing for God's people. And and, and I say that because they're the most common, aren't they? We are created to be worshipers. God has hardwired that into us. We will worship something. Every human being is going to worship something. And by creation, God has hardwired in us a desire to have families. He's created that as as an ordinance within his creation, the marriage ordinance. And coming from that as children and raising those children. Even our pagan neighbors do all of those things. So, this is very, very ordinary and common pursuits. So, it's exactly at those fronts that we face the biggest tests, the biggest battles. In verse 3 of Judges chapter 6, he says, there, there, These are the nations. And he says, There's five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, and the Sidonians and the Hivites. He names four groups of people. There were, there were more than that, but what he's doing here is he's making a geographical reference. If you look at a map, we could say it like this. All four corners of the map are referenced here. There's the Philistines in the southwest, the Sidonians in the northwest, the Hivites were in the northeast, and the Canaanites in the southeast. And we could say it this way. All four corners of Israel failed in these areas. This wasn't, and what we're going to see in the book of, of Judges as we go through, it wasn't def- confined to one particular geographic area where failure took place spiritually. It was all over the map, both literally and figuratively. The spiritual and moral canonization of Israel was thorough and it was exhaustive in its scope. The other thing that's important to know, the Canaanites were not really a specific people. You couldn't do a blood test, for example, which you could have done that back then anyway, but if we could go back in time and do a blood test or we could find some some mummified Canaanite and extract their DNA. There's no common DNA necessarily. This wasn't an ethnic group. It was more of a cultural description. And the reason it's important to understand that is it's, it's, it's probably best describe them as a coalition of people found in this particular geographic area that's promised by God to the Israelites. And this sort of coalition of ethnicities, and that's why you see terms like Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites, is a coalition of various ethnicities that shared similar cultural practices, and particularly their idolatry and sexual immorality. Those were shared, those were common features among these various ethnicities that are sort of labeled with this umbrella term of Canaanites. And why is that important? I think it's important because the Canaanites represent the fact to us that spiritual dangers are broad. They are wide. It's not something we can identify, oh, we just have to avoid the Hittites, and everything else is fine. Or we just have to avoid the Jebusites, and we'll be okay everywhere else. The idea here is that it's pervasive. It's everywhere. I mean, almost literally, it's in the air that we breathe, culturally speaking. So by understanding the Canaanites in that way, it helps us, again, to to draw the spiritual implications here that the threat is diverse, it's ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere, and the diversity of evils among us point to the diversity of evil facing every single believer. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So as we think about these three areas, the first is in the area of worship. The first area in which the people of God were tempted constantly to be conformed to their neighbors was in the area of worship. And there there are so many features of Canaanite worship that were an abomination to the Lord, we couldn't even name all of them here. Um, And in mixed company, I wouldn't want to name all of them. But three key things stand out. When we think about what distinguished the worship that Yahweh had commanded of his people versus the worship... That they encountered among their neighbors. And the first is, is who is God? Yahweh has over and over and over again presented himself as outside of his creation. He is not like man. He is transcendent. He is holy. He is omnipresent, meaning he is everywhere. That's unlike the pagan concept of God. He is omniscient, meaning he is all powerful. He is, he knows everything. He sees all. He dwells among his people wherever they go. And they enter into a land where the Canaanites had a different concept of God or gods. Secondly, Yahweh is a God who speaks. God had warned the people, don't go in and make idols who are deaf, who cannot speak, who cannot listen, who cannot respond to you. Yahweh was a God who spoke. He thundered to them on the mountain of Sinai. And not only that, he caused his word to be written down so it could be preached to them again and again and again. Our God is a God who speaks. And his people should have heard him. They should have followed him. They should have obeyed him. And thirdly, Yahweh ordered the people to worship in such a way that he was the center, not them. The Canaanites worshipped in such a way that they were the center of everything. They were merely appealing to their gods to get what they wanted. But it, was, it revolved around all that the Canaanites wanted. I mean, imagine this. We are told that, that the previous generation of Israelites had died off. So they had been walking in the wilderness, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. It was a desert. Nothing grew there. God fed them with manna, that literally bread that came down out of heaven. They come into the promised land, and when the spies had gone... Joshua and Caleb come back and report good news. It takes two men to carry one bunch of grapes. It's a lush and fruitful land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God had promised them, you will drink from cisterns you did not dig. You will eat from vineyards you did not plant. And they come in, and the neighbors... That they failed to drive out would say to things to them like, "You don't want to know how we're so fruitful? You want to see where that big bunch of grapes came from? You want to see where our great wine harvest and olive harvest came from? Well, let me show you how we do these fertility rites down with the temple prostitute in order to sort of compel our God to act on our behalf." The Canaanites conceived of their gods as little more than powerful versions of themselves. Again, is it a big stretch? Am I having to paint a, a really detailed picture for you to grasp how much of what passes for Christian worship in our day is very much like this? We want God in our image. We want to worship in such a way that God will do what we want him to do. One commentator said, there is no indication that Canaanite gods handed down a moral code for their people to follow. Indeed, the Canaanites were apparently much more moral than their gods an observation that is not especially flattering to the gods. To the Canaanites, fertility was of major importance in worship, and both male and female temple prostitution was prevalent. This is the old adage, you become what you worship. And God had ordered his people, had commanded his people, worship me and only me and only in the way that I have given to you to worship. And yet they conformed more and more to the peoples around them. They adopted their manner of worship, which means necessarily they adopted their view of God. In a sense, they drug God down from heaven and recast him in their own image. Rather than offering their exclusive worship to their holy and transcendent God, the God who is other than them, the God who is not like them, They blended the worship of Baal and the other Canaanite gods with the worship of Yahweh, and slowly, but certainly and surely, they began to reflect the character of those wicked gods because they became what they worshipped. The Canaanites had innumerable ways of seeking the will of their gods. The other difference here is that the manner of revelation. God spoke to his people through a prophet and through his written word the people of Canaan had all sorts of means that they had devised to try to discern the will of their gods through divination, through seeking signs, even through child sacrifice in order to gain some sort of insight into their gods. And Israel was to have no part of this. Instead, they were to believe in Yahweh's word given to Moses, written down, proclaimed by his appointed messengers. They were to believe that that was sufficient for them. The New Bible Commentary said the need to know the will of God on specific occasions, for example, in time of war, was keenly felt in ancient times. And the nations around Israel had devised various magical procedures for finding it out. These included examining the entrails of birds and animals for omens, consulting the dead, and apparently, even the sacrifice of children. Magic could be used to try to affect the course of events as well as simply to gain information. See, they wanted to manipulate God in order to get what they wanted. They wanted to manipulate God in order to persuade him to tell them, what's your will? What's going to happen next? But a third feature of Canaanite worship was that it was self-indulgent. It was fleshly, it was carnal, which, of course, perfectly reflected their view of their gods. They viewed their gods as carnal, so why wouldn't they not be in their worship of them? But Yahweh had called his people to something really entirely different. The worship of of Yahweh, as he had given himself to his people, was for their good, for their benefit, for their building up, for their edification. True worship of Yahweh always draws people nearer to him and makes them more like him. But instead, the people were going after these other gods and becoming more like them. Another commentator said, Canaanite worship was socially destructive. Its religious acts were pornographic and sick, seriously damaging to children, creating early impressions of deities with no interest in moral behavior. It tried to dignify, by the use of religious labels, depraved acts of bestiality and corruption. It had a low estimate of human life. It suggested that anything was permissible, promiscuity, murder, anything else, in order to guarantee a good crop at harvest. And you might think, well, that's, that's over the top. We see, that's easy enough to see, that's, that's evil. We wouldn't go that far, but listen to the next sentence. It ignored the highest values, both in the family and and in the wider community, love, loyalty, purity, peace, and security, and encourage the view that all these things were inferior to material prosperity, physical satisfaction, and human pleasure. A society where those things mattered most is self destructive. See, it's a worship that revolved around the desires of men, their own pleasure, their own material benefit, their physical satisfaction again, I don't think it's difficult to persuade you that much of what passes for worship, particularly in the modern West, is fundamentally pagan in its ideas, in its forms, in its presuppositions, its expressions. Revelation is sought not from the word of God alone by his spirit, but revelation is sought based on impressions, visions secret messages from God, or from one's own gut, your own, own intuition. Worship that is carnal, that's appealing to the flesh, seeking to make men happy rather than honoring God is ultimately seeking a material prosperity and a pleasure rather than true worship of God. But don't we have to be honest? Don't, don't we have to be honest that we want those same things? I mean, we want the comfort, we want the ease, we want the material prosperity, we want those, those, those physical sensations. Sometimes we become dissatisfied with the simple, the ordinary, the, the, the means that God has given. He says, this is the way I want to be worshipped. And we say, well, but isn't there something more? Isn't there something more stimulating, something more exciting for us, something that gets me involved emotionally and physically more? We want programs and entertainment. Are we seeing our church as the place to meet social needs, or is the church of Jesus Christ the place of worship? The place where we we hear Christ, the place where we share the joys and bear the burdens of God's people? Or is our worship shaped by a different view of God, that he is here to meet our needs, that he is there to provide for us physically, rather than thinking of our primary need as being that of feeding our souls. I mean, fundamentally, again, do you think about this area of worship as warfare? I mean, sometimes it can feel like that on a Sunday morning when you're trying to get kids dressed and get out the door. It does feel like an act of war, because it is. And and, and you know me, I'm not the one who's going to look for a demon under every bush. There's not a boogeyman hiding behind every lost sock. But don't those things tend to affect us most on a Sunday morning? We're trying to get out the door. Do you realize every time you allow something else to interfere with your worship of God, that you are surrendering ground in a battle? Every time that you decide to do something else rather than gathering with God's people for worship, you are surrendering ground in a cosmic war. This is warfare. This is a battleground. I mean, anyone who ever has said, I'm not going to work on Sunday knows that could be a declaration of war, can't it? Or anyone who says, my kid's not available for the tournament on Sunday. It's an act of war, isn't it? Or anyone who tells a family member, we would love to be at the reunion, the birthday party, the anniversary celebration, but we're not going to be there on the Lord's Day. That's an act of war, isn't it? But do we think about worship in that way? Do we think about this? This is a battleground. Worship is not something we just passively show up and and, and happens to us. It is contending for ground for the souls, not only our own souls, but for those in our families, those within our community of faith. And perhaps we need to think more carefully about how easily and how subtly we are being conformed to the patterns of worship of our pagan neighbors. The fact that we find ourselves desiring those things rather than what God has given to us and said, I am the good, I am the best good you can have. But there's a second front, and I gave serious thought to having a, a, a separate sermon on each one of these, because there's so much that could could be worked through here. But I want to actually get on to the judges at some point, right? But the second area of, of the area of marriage and human sexuality, by God's command, Israel was to be wholly different, other than, distinct from their neighbor's. I mean, you could read through uh, even a a tedious book, like the book of Numbers or Leviticus, and you will see that in significant detail, God declares to his people in what particular ways they were to be different. Even the clothes that they wore. They were not to wear, you know, cotton pants and a wool shirt. They They were constantly reminded every single day, with the seeds that they planted, the clothes that they put on, how they prepared their dinner what they ate, that they were to be a holy and distinct and separate people. They were to be different from the world around them. And by God's design, this area of marriage and sexuality should have been one of the most striking differences between them and their pagan neighbors. That that area of, of marriage today ought to be one of the most striking differences. When the apostles began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Roman Empire, one of the most striking features of Christian ethics was their sexuality compared to the excesses and the immorality of Rome. John Gill said, the Israelites intermarried with the inhabitants of the land contrary to the express command of God, whereby they confounded their families, debased their blood, and were ensnared into idolatry. See, God had commanded his people to tear down the altars of the Canaanites, wherever they found them. He forbade them from cutting covenants with the inhabitants of the land. But I think the Israelites missed a very important corollary. And it wasn't implied. It wasn't implicit. God spelled it out for them. They they missed an important connection. Listen to this from Exodus chapter 34 is rather you are to tear down their altars and shatter their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god. For Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god, lest you cut a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And one of them invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And... You take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Do You see what he did? There's an immediate, direct connection. We could draw a straight line between worship and marriage. Do you think about your marriage in this way? This is war. This is the chief battleground in the in the in the fight for your soul and mind. Do you hear the connection that God makes between false worship and marriage? Over and over and over again, Yahweh warns his people that marriage to idolaters will create what more idolaters. Deuteronomy seven. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons for they will turn your sons away from following me, and they will serve other gods. Then the anger of Yahweh will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. Now we're going to see this later, when we come to the account of perhaps the most famous of the judges, with Samson. It's exactly in this area, where Samson begins to go astray. God was right. Marriage to unbelievers turns away the hearts of his people every time. And tragically, you you can go and read in, in 1 Kings 11, or you can read it in Nehemiah 13 about Solomon's apostasy and how his love for many foreign wives turned his heart away from the Lord. The wisest man who ever lived wasn't sufficient to keep his heart devoted only to the Lord. 1 Kings 11, verse 4, Now it happened at the time that Solomon was old, his his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to Yahweh his God, as the heart of David his father had been. See, the people of Israel perverted the very institution of marriage. God had designed marriage for his glory and for the good of his people, to be a place of, of mutual help and companionship between a godly man and a godly wife. It was to be a place of of legitimate procreation. It was to be a place of, of lawful and joyful sexual expression. And the people of God perverted all of that. They perverted the very institution. And not only did it lead to idolatry and false worship, which the Lord had promised, but it actually undermined the very purposes for which God had created marriage to begin with. So instead... The Israelites used marriages of their sons and daughters to create covenants with the people. See, marriage was designed to be a blessing and a help to God's people, and what it was instead was a political connection, a tool to make alliances so you can gain access to this field or to this well or to this vineyard. They sought to make themselves more favorable in the side of the world, and they used their marriages to gain that. Rather than seeing their marriages as a particular place of distinction from the world, they used marriage as a means of getting more like the world. And they gave little thought to the spiritual consequences of such an arrangement. God had said, do not cut a covenant with the Canaanites. And he uses the term cut a covenant because they would literally cut an animal in half and they would walk through it. And the terms of the covenant was, if we break the covenant, what happened to that animal is going to happen to me. So it was the idea of cutting a covenant. And and God had said, don't cut a covenant with the the Canaanites. He'd also said, don't intermarry with them. And the Israelites said, I'll I'll do it better. We'll do it two for one. We'll cut a covenant by means of marriage with them. How about that? Notice something. The parents were charged specifically not to give their daughters or take their sons or take wives, foreign wives for their sons. He places this responsibility with parents. You see, we, we live in a culture that says, well, I mean, we're after the Enlightenment, so to speak. I mean, we, we are, uh, everybody's a, a morally a free agent. My sons, my daughters, I mean, they're free to do whatever they want to do. I mean, I can't help who they love. We don't get that from the Scriptures, do we? We have an opportunity as parents. Will we wait until our parents or our children become old enough to be interested in the opposite sex to begin to instruct them, to be able to teach them about God-honoring marriage? We've likely waited too long if we're waiting until that age. But further. The very worldly idea that we leave our children to their own desires, their own wishes, in the selection of a marriage partner is both foolish and unbiblical. Now, I'm not saying we arrange marriages. Don't hear me that. I'm not saying that at all. But, are we, but we go the other way and say, oh, we've got to be hands-off then. We don't get that from the Scriptures. And I'm not advocating at all for a, for a particular template of dating or courtship or any, anything like that. That's not, the Scriptures don't give us a template, but the Word of God does warn us in both the Old Testament and the New. It warns both parents and children about the dangers of being unequally yoked. And the spiritual peril that they will come into with almost certainty if we ignore these things. So, you know, think about this. In, in this common kingdom, in, in this common world in which we live, is there a greater decision? Is there a decision that causes more impact for good or evil than the choice of a spouse? I mean, outside of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ himself, is there any relationship in the human sphere that's more important and more, um, more determinative than marriage? The answer is No. In Judges 14, this is what we see with Samson. He he goes down to Timnah, and and he he spies this Philistine woman. And his parents begin to plead with him at that point. His father says, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Take her for me. She was right in my eyes. Dad, I don't care that she's not a Christian. She's beautiful. That's what I want. Mom, I don't care that he's not a godly man. He's successful and he's charming and he's handsome. That's what I want. And as parents, the world says, you just have to let that happen. You have no voice. You have no say. And worse, you have no responsibility. Parents, do not underestimate both your ability and your duty to shape what your sons and daughters find attractive in a mate. We shape our kids' appetites all the time, don't we? When they're little guys, we would say, you've got to eat broccoli. You've got to learn to like this. And praise the Lord, sometimes they actually do learn to like some of these things. We shape their appetites in, in entertainment, in music, in the books that they read. We, we have a lot of influence, don't we? And we think we don't have the capacity to shape what they find attractive in a wife or a husband. I think sometimes we've spent, and for good reason, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of energy, trying to to, to explain to our sons what not to look at. To explain to our daughters what not to look at. That we've failed to build the affirmative case. we failed to tell our sons, this is what you ought to look at. This is what is good to seek out. I mean, have have we said, for example, son, look at the humility of that young woman. Look at the way she speaks and carries herself. That's what you want in a wife. Or do we say to our daughters, honey, do you see that young man, how, how hard he works, how respectful he is, how he treats his mother? That's what you want in a husband. Do we tell our sons Look at how this woman is, is, how godly she is, how she is interested in the word of God, how she likes to study the things of God. That's what you want in a spouse. We tell our daughters, this young man has a plan. He's seeking after the things of God. He's here every time the doors are open at the church. He, he's, that's the kind of man you want to look for. Do we have the capacity as parents and the duty to shape those affections, to shape those attractions even. And I'm not talking about bonds or brunettes. I'm talking about the things that are a character, the things that, are, that, are, that matter, the things that will not fade, that actually grow more beautiful as you age. Parents, do you see holiness and faithfulness in your own marriages as an act of war? Do you see, this is a battleground, a battleground for your own mind, your own affections. Do you see that marriage itself is, is the front? Sometimes it's the chief front in the battle. And we've, we've given up ground, evangelically speaking. We've given the ground. Do you understand that, that preparation of your sons and daughters for godly marriages is a powerful both offensive and defensive tactic? in the war against their souls. I mean, husbands, think about this. If marriage is a battleground, and it is, but if marriage is a battleground, if it's a war, but it's also an instrument of warfare, then what investment are you making in that marriage? What investment are you making to sharpen that instrument, to make that a more effective means of war? Do you know that it's going to take some time? It's going to take your time away from other things to invest in that marriage. It's going to take money. It's going to take other resources to invest to spend the time and the energy and the money that's necessary that husband and wife are pouring into each other. And man, that starts with us. It has to start with us. But are we committed to making, in that sense, our marriage is not a place where we lose ground, but the sharp tip of the spear. And most of all, for the sake of our children and their souls. There's a third area, this third primary front. We see the area of worship, we see the area of, of marriage and human sexuality. And again, you know there's far more, more we, could, we, could, we could have camped out there for several more weeks with the third primary front in the spiritual warfare in the land of Canaan, the battles which, frankly, the people of Israel lost over and over and over again. It's the war for the education, for the discipleship, for the minds of their children. They just surrendered ground. I'm going to spend less time on this third point, not, not because it's less important, I mean, not by a mile, but because if we're truly engaged in an act of warfare with respect to worship, if we're genuinely engaged in the fight within our marriages, and if we're bringing along our children in those discussions, then the third point will be helped by the first two. We will more naturally see that education and discipleship are acts of war. We already know, back in, in chapter 2, we're told there's a generation. generation after them, a generation after Joshua, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And we see in chapter 3, in verse 6, they, their daughters they took to themselves for wives, their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. We see explicitly in verse 6 the area of worship, the area of marriage, but implicitly here was the failure to disciple and train their own sons. I mean, frankly, here's what should have happened. When dad said, you know what? I want access to that field and that well. I'm going to give him my daughter. That daughter should have been the one to stand up and say, dad, I don't want to marry a pagan. Or the sons says, dad. Don't make me do that. I want to honor Yahweh with everything that I have. It's not worth the field, Dad. They didn't train their sons and their daughters in that way. We saw, as Kyle read in Psalm 106, kind of the extreme version of this, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. And again, we might think, well, I'm opposed to the bloodshed of abortion. I'm opposed opposed to the infanticide that's going on to to the tune of millions of babies annually. But in what other ways are we willing to sacrifice our children? On what altar are we willing to offer them up? for academic success, for sports success. The list could go on and on and on. What, in what areas are we willing to offer them up as sacrifices, to sacrifice them to demons, to send them off to be educated and schooled in the ways of Babylon? After 70 years of captivity in Babylon, Nehemiah makes this observation. In those days, I also saw that the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. But only the language of the people. What a travesty it is to see evangelical kids growing up who can't speak the language of the scriptures. They can quote all kinds of pop cultural references. They know sports statistics. They can quote the lyrics of every song on the radio. They don't don't know God. They don't know his word. They've never been catechized and trained in the things of God. May this never be said of the children of GFBC Conroe. It is is good and profitable for our kids to understand the arts and sciences and mathematics and all those things. I'm I'm not saying that at all, but, but what do we give up? If that becomes the idol? What do we give up on the altar of education? I mean, to paraphrase our Lord, what what will it profit your son if he gains the best career in the world but forfeits his own soul? What will it gain your daughter if she reaches the heights of academic achievement but robs her soul of love for God and his people? What will will it be profit? I mean, even secular thinkers today are beginning to notice how the enemies of God have for generations now been slowly, systematically undermining the foundations. They've been capturing the hearts and minds of children in our government schools. They know, and they've known for a while, this is the way you defeat a nation. This is the way you defeat a people. It's by subversion. You may have heard the interview with, uh, is a KGB defector named Yuri Besmanov. In 1984... He was interviewed shortly following his defection. And his words are prescient. They they are almost prophetic. He said, according to my opinion, and opinions of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage and such. The other 85% is a slow process, which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, basically mind control, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite the abundance of information, so one is able to come, so no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their family, or their community, or their country. Do you get that? We're going to undermine things in such a way they don't even know what's right and what is wrong. You lose the ability to think rationally and critically. He goes on. He says, so basically, there are two very simple answers. There are two very simple answers. Maybe two simplistic answers or solutions, but nevertheless, they are the only solutions. Number one, educate yourself. Number two, understand what's going on around you. You are not living at a time of peace. You're in a state of war, and you have precious little time to save yourself. You don't have much time, especially if you were talking about the younger generation. There's not much time left for convulsions to the beautiful disco music. Very soon, it will just go out overnight. This is a former communist, a pagan, who says only 15% of our time is spent on actual kind of warfare kinds of activities. The other 85% is the long game. It's the slow rot. It's the termites eating away at the walls. Now I can promise you this, on the authority of God's word, that Satan's and, Satan and his demons are far more strategic and have a far longer game plan in place than anything the Soviets ever dreamed up. That's not a stretch, is it? But I, I don't think... I can come up with any better summary of the warning that we ought to hear from Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, than from the words of this former Soviet. Number one, educate yourself. Isn't that what Yahweh has said? Here is my word. Here is here I am before you. Know me. Know my commandments. Teach them to your children. When you get up in the morning, when you walk, walk along the way, when you lay down at night. Tell them these things. And then Yahweh says, I'm going to give you various ordinances. When the Passover comes along every year and your kids ask you, Dad, what is this about? And you say, ah, I'm glad you asked. Our Lord is the God who took us out of the land of Egypt. He led us by his own right hand and mighty outstretched arm. And he took us and he drowned the chariots of the Egyptians. And he led us into the safe land. That's our God, son. That's the one we worship." And he is able to deliver us in every way. Educate yourself. But secondly, understand what's going on around you. You are not living at a time of peace. You're in a state of war, and you have precious little time to save yourself, and I would add, and your children. I mean, men, think about it this way. What, what if, Imagine a scenario. You're, you're, a, you're a marine colonel. You're in command of a base that's behind enemy lines. And, and you've kind of allowed your troops, the Marines under you, to sort of, sort of lured into this sense of safety. I mean, there's a designated time and place every single week where you're supposed to gather for exercises to be trained and to sharpen your instruments and maintain your equipment. But, you know, you yourself, you're, you're, the people under you know that, I mean, you're only there about half the time. And even when you're there, you're kind of disinterested. You're going through the motions. What do you think the effect is of those underneath your command? What do they begin to think about the nature of the enemy? What do they, what do they begin to think about the nature of the threat that exists against them? Husbands, fathers, this is on us primarily. Not exclusively, but primarily. It starts here with us. We're the ones who going to be held accountable to God. Do you do you approach the ordinary means of grace as if this is a preparation for war? We're being instructed, we're being exhorted, we're being encouraged, we're being admonished, corrected, trained, we're encouraging one another in the unit. Or, no, this is peacetime. Time for R and R. We can slack off. There's no there's no real pressing danger. The warfare of nonconformity presses upon us whether we recognize it or not. The temptations are around us every single day to conform. It starts with subtle ways. This is just coming to my mind. Uh, Brother Stephen and I went to a, a training at Cofield Prison several years ago. Uh, our sister Ariel could tell us a lot more stories, but we, we went and to be trained on, on to be, uh, have access, volunteers in the prison. We were hoping to be able to lead a Bible study. And something that was, I just never thought about. He said, don't even let an inmate, don't even give them a piece of gum. And it will sound simple enough, it's just a piece of gum. But they won't eat it. They'll hang on to it. And the next week when you're there, they'll say, I need a cell phone. Well, I'm not giving you a cell phone. Well, I'm going to tell them you gave me gum then. And then you give them a cell phone. And the next week they want something else, and then something else. And then before you know it, they're asking you to bring drugs in and other things starts with one little thing, because they're crafty. Because they know how the game works. Our spiritual adversary is far more crafty than that. And we think, it's just a little thing. We'll give ground, we'll conform in this area, but that's it. I'm drawing the line there. It's only a stick of gum, that's it. But it's not, is it? Saints, we, we take to heart as we go through the book of Judges, have this thing in mind as you think about the rest of what we'll read. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. As you see the folly and you see the sin of the Israelites on glaring display, think to yourself this started with a small conformity to the world around them. It started with a little compromise. It didn't start with authoring their child to the fire. That's not where it started. Did it? It started, well, my daughter likes the guy. He seems all right. He's not a criminal. It won't be so bad for them to marry. I mean, it won't be so bad for my son to go spend time with the farmer and the fertility ritual that he does at the beginning and the end of every harvest. It'll be just a little, I mean, just just that much. May the Lord give us wisdom. May the Lord give us discernment and train us. This is what he said he would do. The warfare is here for the purpose of training us, testing us. Will we be loyal to Yahweh and his commands or not? But we have here this this final victory put before us with the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and succeeded in every place that Israel had failed. In every place where the first Adam surrendered to temptation, our Lord Jesus stood firm. In every place where Israel capitulated to the culture around him, our Lord Jesus perfectly, fully, Fulfilled all the word of God. And the message of the gospel is that if we will believe that, if we believe that, that, that he died and that God rose him from the dead, we will be saved. That if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. If we will confess our sin, he is faithful both to forgive us of our sin, to pardon our iniquity, but also to cleanse us from unrighteousness, to impute the righteousness of Christ to us. Well, there's much that there's, there's much in terms of duty upon us here, but let's not forget the one who has perfectly fulfilled all these duties on our behalf, and not if, but when we stumble, when we falter, when we find ourselves having conformed to the culture, conformed to the world in this way or that way, when we fall on our faces, seek the face of God, come to him in faith and repentance, believing that He will restore us. It's not too late. Let's pray, Father and our God. We bless you and we praise you. We thank that you thank you that you've made yourself known to us, and and we thank you as uncomfortable as it often is that you have made ourselves known to us. But we confess that apart from your word, we would we would think far too highly of ourselves. We would think far too highly of our own abilities, our strengths, our intelligence, our strategic abilities, and all those things. But you've left us with no illusions about our frailties. And we, we pray that we would repent of our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, Repent of our dependence upon our own strength and wisdom. And instead that we would acknowledge you in all of our ways. Would help us to walk before you in holiness. To be distinct from the world around us. And believe that you will use those things, not only for our profit. But to provoke our neighbors to ask questions about our faith, to provoke our neighbors to ask us for the reason of the hope that exists within us. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.